Thank you so much. Good morning. Labor Day weekend, transitional in so many ways. Obviously, people coming and going, getting in their last bits of travel before the fall programs officially kick off school-wise and otherwise. But for us, we understand that life itself is transitional, isn't it? And what we have to do is to understand what lasts and what doesn't, what's permanent, what's temporary, including understanding the trials of life. Because what we are now looking at in chapter 5, verse 7, down through verse 11 of the book of James, are the trials that the people to whom James wrote seem to be forefront. At the very least, what you and I see here is that these people are grappling with what is unchangeable in the midst of these changing times they find themselves in. They've been scattered. They're not necessarily in the homes and in the settings that they were so used to. But now as the trials of life seem to come bearing down upon their own souls, they need a word of encouragement. So we're going to be looking at this word of encouragement found in James chapter 5 as we continue this series in the book of James. And in verse 7, you and I are told something regarding the trials of life and how we're to face them with these words. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So in the midst of the trials of life, you are going to find repeatedly the emphasis upon the Lord in these verses, which is what we need in our own everyday personal experience. So we're going to take these verses, 7 through 11, harness them, attempt them to, to apply them to our lives, and as we do so, We'll look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, as we're coming into your presence, we are in the midst of this three-day weekend, incredibly aware of our own life situations. The question is, are we aware of you in the midst of our life situations? Some are going through various trials, and they're wondering, how long, O oh Lord, how long? They're dealing not only with the intensity, the intense nature of the trials, but the extensive nature of the trials, the duration. And what we want to do, Father, is to be drawn to the cross of Jesus Christ, where he endured trials on our behalf, died in our place, 
and three days later was credentialed through resurrection power. And so we want to keep our eyes focused. We need to have our eyes fixated upon the one who died in our place. So, Father, no matter what trials we are going through right now, help us to be able to discover your truth in the midst of our trials. Embrace your plan in the midst of this purpose you've given us and live a life that honors you. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wheels. We've come here again to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Tony Dungy. Tony Dungy was a very gifted football player. He obviously was head coach both at Tampa Bay as well as Indianapolis and now a football analyst. But most distinctly, one who loves Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He tells this story about his father's patience, character revealed in the midst of trial. That dad was an unusually quiet, thoughtful man, a scientist at heart and by training. He loved the outdoors, the ruggedness of it, and fishing. Well, fishing allowed him time to contemplate, to listen, and to marvel at God's creation and God's grace. It was a particular day that year that stands out in my mind of all the countless times in which we fished together. It was a summer day of 1965. And summers in Michigan are beautiful, comfortable temperatures, and clear blue skies. I was nine years old. My brother was five. And on that day, my father was teaching my brother and me how to cast. We were both working on it, mostly in silence, until my father's patient voice finally broke a period of stillness. Hey, Lyndon, he said to my brother, don't move for a minute, please. I looked back and watched my dad move his hand towards Lyndon's face, calmly, deliberately, as he continued to speak. Now, Lyndon, always make sure that you know not only where your pole is when you're starting to cast. And at this point, I realized that my dad was working my brother's hook out of his own ear. But Lyndon also makes certain that you know where everyone else, including your father, is around you. And I learned something more about my father and my heavenly father that day. Patience. And years later, when I got hooked myself in my hand, I realized how much it hurts the weight, and the required patience. And I remember my father's patience that day when Lyndon's hook was caught in his ear, and I finally understood the importance of staying calm in the midst of the storms of life 
and communicating truth clearly. God has a way of positioning his people in the storms of life so that we have the opportunity of communicating truth clearly. You're going through some storms and the trials of life right now. What I want to do with you is to examine very carefully four significant guidelines that God, through the penmanship of James, offers you and me to be able to take these trials, manage them in a way that brings honor and glory to God's name, and to do so patiently. Notice, first of all, verses 7 and 8, we're going to seize this first guideline that leaps out at us. The number one, that in times of trials, comma, be patient, comma, looking toward the coming of the Lord. What I want you to see is the way in which now James, in essence, bookends this tremendous guideline for you and for me with regard to the dual emphasis of the coming of the Lord. Do you spot it in verse 7 and verse 8? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. There is one. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains, verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for, there it is again, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Squeeze that together and begin to think it through carefully. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, not unbelievers, brothers at this point. In other words, you and I are called to communicate truth in the midst of trying times with a sense of patience. Patience, not passivity. There's a difference. Patience involves proactivity. Now, when you and I look at this, there is a faithful endurance on hand here when he says be patient, because the Greek word carries with the idea of being long-tempered, not short-tempered. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, he informed us early on. And what he's describing here is the long fuse of life. So he uses this now, challenging you and challenging me, as he addresses once again the family of faith. There has been an absence of this phrase, my brothers, hasn't there been, in the last two paragraphs. In the prior paragraphs, it's as if he was speaking to what I might dub religious secularists. Individuals who had seized ownership, so they thought, of life. Life as it pertained to time, life as it pertained to wealth, and they wanted God to simply manage what they themselves own rather than viewing God as the owner, and they were to manage what God owns. But now my brother's breaks in once again. He's back to the family of faith. And as he speaks to the family of faith, the question in my mind is, is he speaking to those who have been severely challenged in the midst of trials by those that he has previously spoken of? 
Whatever the case is, he's telling you, and he's telling me at this point, be patient. In other words, long-tempered. You are to manage your emotions wisely under his ownership because he owns your emotions. And you and I manage them. He says, brothers, do this until the coming of the Lord. And the phrase, the coming of the Lord, leaps out at us because at this very moment, this sense of the parousia informs you and informs me that this is one of over 300 New Testament references to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And if we don't take seriously the whole idea of Christ's return, then you and I have what I might describe as an underdeveloped gospel. Because the gospel entails the scope, the entirety of the full redemptive plan of God. So now you and I look at the one who's credentialed by being raised from the dead and we consider his return and ask ourselves, well, how does this work itself out practically in my everyday living? He says, well, let me give you an example. Look at the agricultural, the agrarian community around you. He says, next, see, that is a, a visual word to express a verbal See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So let's ponder the farmers of the earth. Look at what appears on the screen here. Notice that one of two pictures is entitled Our Good Earth by John Kerry. And you say, Gary, why is that so significant? Notice the strength of this farmer. But I want us to be able to understand the time in which this picture was developed, this painting. It was 1942. And America needed a picturesque understanding of how to be able to withstand the encroachment of Hitler's forces as they were making their way across the landscape of the globe. This painting was increasingly hung on various walls and homes throughout the land of this Midwestern farmer. This painting depicted a farmer from the state of Wisconsin. Now notice the other one. This painting of this farmer is of a farmer who's in the latter years, not the vital years of his life. But what stands out likewise is that this too was a time of intense trials globally because in the land of Russia at this point, there was a revolution that was percolating. And the man who was most respected and honored in Russia at that time was Tolstoy. Think war and peace. Anna Karina. And Tolstoy, the painter, spotted him out one day in a hot August setting. And Tolstoy had rolled up his sleeves in the latter years of his life to help a widow in their community. Her husband had passed away years ago, and somehow, someway, this land had to be plowed. So what did Tolstoy do? For six hours, this elderly man, expending his energies, plowed nonstop that soil. Tie it all together. What do we learn from this? What farmers teach us is that 
this is a matter of process. The harvest, you see, is not instantaneous. Back to this lesson he's teaching us about patience. The harvest doesn't come immediately. Speaking of you and me, God does not bury us. God plants us. And he promises that your experience and my experiences combined will produce a harvest. Now, as James' readership ponders this, they've got to understand that as seed, they've been cast in a setting upon a soil in a land that they didn't exactly pick out for themselves. They've been dispersed, these Jewish Christians. Don't take ownership of where God chooses to plant you. At that time in which God, the sovereign planter, casts his seed of life, he sovereignly chooses when the winds of time will push that seed in a direction that you nor I could possibly have planned. And he plans the planting And as he does so, what he offers you and for me is the patience of the farmer principle. Notice when he says, see how the farmer waits. Because so much of what he has to do carries with it the idea of the wait. He waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. But God, why can't you just do it all at once? Just dump the water on us and produce an immediate harvest. But you see, what God does so often with your life and my life is that he chooses to work in process. There were two rains, not one. And there was a time in between these two rains because the early rains described here in the seventh verse took place in October and November. And the late rains took place in March and April. Our natural tendency in life is to simply say, God, I want to take ownership of time. Let's just bring it all on at once so that I can have an immediate harvest. But the principles of the harvest are such that what God does for you and for me is to work in process. Maybe right now you are in the early rain season. And then there's going to be a duration between the late rains coming your way. For others of us, we're in a season of life we'll call late rains, and we're wondering, why, Lord, did this have to take so long? But he times his trials. And he sovereignly invests in the soil of our lives in order to accomplish his purpose, not our purpose, for his glory, not our glory. And so ask yourself now, am I in the early rains? Or am I in the late rains? 
And am I willing to embrace the duration between the two seasons? The Waldensians had to. The Waldensians were a small Protestant group that were persecuted in Europe in the 17th century. In 1686, they were exiled to Switzerland. They remained for three years, but they were uncertain during that time. When can I return? Well, they arrived back in May 1694. They were eventually allowed to begin to once again worship in the manner in which they believed the scriptures had guided them. When they returned on that May day in 1689, they dubbed that day, quote, the glorious return, unquote. Now, descendants of the Waldensians today, they live in Valdez, North Carolina. And every year, every year on August 15th, that community gathers together and celebrates the glorious return. Now what you and I have to do in the midst of the duration of the trials of life that we're experiencing is to treat the glorious return as a reality, not merely as a possibility. And allow that future to inform our present when we are dealing with the durations of the trials of life. And allow God to be able to speak to us through his his life plan and his strategy and his purpose for your life and mine. So he says to you and says to me in verse 8, you also be patient. Be patient. There's the word again. Be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Circle that word establish in the phrase establish your hearts. It means literally to prop up and support that which is heavy. Now are you heavy hearted this morning? Are you weighed down by the trials of life and desperately need for the truth about life to guide you through the trials of life? Take Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, and in verse 51, a Samaritan village has just rejected Jesus in this section. You and I are informed that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, listen, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The same Greek word that is used in James chapter 5, verse 8, for establishing your heart is used here for Jesus. When he was about to face the trials with a capital T that were coming his way, to set his face to head toward Jerusalem. And what you and I find here is that he was still willing, with a resolute spirit, having established his heart to move toward his trial, 
rather than to move around that trial. Now, is your tendency to simply move around the trials, skirting the principles of Scripture? Or to create a movement through the trials, embracing the sum of the Scriptures? These are the sort of questions that I think you and I have got to be able to answer in the challenges of life. Because what we've got to understand is that God has not promised you and me in this world to make us comfortable in this world, but rather conformable to his word as we embrace his truth in the times in which we live. Not comfortable in this world, but conformable to his will. Which means if I am going to be conformable to his will, I might be uncomfortable in this world, particularly when I've just gone through the early rains and it seems like it's taking forever for the late rains to arrive. But he bookends it, doesn't he? And there in James chapter 5, verse 7, he said, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then again in verse 8, You also be patient, establish your hearts, as Jesus did as he made forward movement towards Jerusalem. Why? For the coming of the Lord. And now you have the dual emphasis here, what God wants you and wants me to be able to embrace. But now, once you've done that, once you've done that, here is a second guideline that leaps out of these verses in verse 9. That secondly, in times of trials, be patient, waiting upon the judgment of the Lord. Verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What's fascinating is that, again, he's talking now to believers, not unbelievers, and maybe these Jewish Christians find that their minds are going back in the histories of their, of their faith. Oh, there's Moses. There's Aaron. And the Israelite population is wondering how long in the midst of this wilderness experience. So what happens is, according to the book of Numbers... They began to grumble, and they would grumble against Moses and his leadership and even God. And they look back at the good old days of Egypt, believe it or not, and what they develop is a selective memory of what was good and forgetting what was bad. Chances are people who grumble continuously about the wanderings and the experiences of the trials of life have developed such a selective memory that the past looks better than the present. Thus, they grumble in the present, and they might find themselves in close quarters in the house, at work. And what the trials of life do to us is to reveal our faith to those around us. There is a way in which trials expose that which is from within. And so he's saying, now, check yourself as a parent. Check yourself as a single person. Check yourself, no matter what stage of life you find yourself in. 
In what way is my tendency to grumble impeding my ability to live faithfully for God in the midst of the trials that I'm experiencing? Do not grumble. And notice he says, in particular relationally, against one another. Another of the another phrases found in the Bible. Brothers. He answers the question, why? When you're about to raise your hand. And here's his answer for you and for me. So that you may not be judged. Behold. That is a visual word to describe a verbal principle. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And you say, but Gary, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Gary... How does that relate to the believer at this point? And why is he speaking to believers? He calls them brothers, and yet at the same time he's talking about the judgment, you see, of the Lord. Well, there's an interesting idea behind all of this that even the Apostle Paul would write of. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Steve Allen. Steve Allen was a comedian of a prior generation. He told on one of his late-night television programs about a lady named Liz. Liz had been hurt in an automobile accident. I can almost see Allen smiling as he says this. Lawyer came to visit her and said, uh, quote, I've come to assist you in, in getting damages, unquote. And Liz replied, I got all the damages I want. What I need is rewards. You and I will be standing before our Lord. We might feel like we're damaged goods right now because of the trials of life. But he rewards his people. This is not the judgment of condemnation. Condemnation took place at the cross of Jesus Christ when he died in your place and mine for our sins. No, for the believer, this is the judgment of reward. And so now you and I begin to think about that. We begin to focus upon that And we say to ourselves, that means then I better not focus on my situation. Otherwise, my tendency is to become angry. And I can't focus upon myself. Otherwise, I'm going to be filled with self-pity. And I can't focus on someone to blame, or then I will become a grumbler. And I can't focus on the present, or else I'll lose a sense of the future and what God's plan and purpose is with regard to not only the early rains, but the late rains of life itself as he gives new perspective to the duration of time that we find ourselves in. Waiting on him. Trusting him. Seeking him. There's a third guideline. Flows out of verse 10. That thirdly, in times of trials, be patient. Witnessing to the name of the Lord. Verse 10. 
As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke how? In the name of the Lord. Begin to think about that. When you and I are facing trials in life, so often we have to do is to come grips with the fact we are not offered an explanation as to the whys of life. We're given an example with regard to the hows of life. Not always will God give us a complete, holistic, thorough explanation as to why we go through what we go through. What we have to do is to move beyond the whys of life because as we have oftentimes said, he reveals enough to make our faith intelligent. He conceals enough to allow our faith to grow. And maybe right now you're between the early and the late rains of life. And you're wrestling with the why, but what James is saying is that I'm a practical writer. I want you to shift your focus away from the why to the how and ultimately to the who. The one who set his heart, established his heart as he made his way not around Jerusalem, but toward Jerusalem to die in your place. And as you do so, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, he says to you and to me, take the prophets who spoke how? In the name of the Lord. And the writer of Hebrews did that as well. Notice what appears on the screen here. Men and women alike. Women received back there dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And you say, but Gary, that seems to be distant until you look at the movement of ISIS right now and you begin to consider what is taking place in in the very heart of the trials that Chalcedonian Christians are experiencing at this very moment that is being outlined on certain stations nationally. You look at that. You ponder that. And years ago, he had become a Christian. He was walking along a trail when he met a fellow tribesman who asked, Are you one of those believers? When Wands answered yes, the man drew back his large machete knife, severed the index finger of Wands left hand. Two days later, his biographer tells us, Juan reached the home of missionary where he told the story. And as they went to the emergency room of the government hospital, Courtney said to Juan, Juan, we'll pray for you that you will be healed soon. Point. Juan said, yes, I would like that. And will you pray also for the man who cut off my finger? You see, he's not a Christian and needs to know Christ. And I need to go back and tell him about my Jesus. 
what this does for you and for me is to equip us to be able to be faithful between the early and the late reigns of life. To be able to embrace truth as it relates to trial. Not focus so much on trial to the exclusion of truth, but focus upon the truth which guides us through the trial. And when you do that, and I do that, we develop an elasticity of the soul to be able to absorb truth that otherwise we might have dismissed and said, but that's for, that's for someone else, not me. Which leads us then to this fourth guideline. You can see it in verse 11. Once again, he uses the word behold. It's a visual word for a verbal truth. And he says to you and me, visualize this. Behold, we consider those blessed. That's a beatitude found, believe it or not, in the book of James. Blessed who remain steadfast. And all of a sudden, your mind goes back to when we first studied uh, the opening verses right after Easter. Count it all joy, my brothers, in verse 2 of chapter 1, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And now you look at verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you say, Gary, I'm grabbing hold of this idea. If I'm not going to be given an explanation as to why I need an example as to how, as I trust my Lord, somebody come to mind? And James says, well, I was just thinking about Job. So let me tell you a little bit about Job. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Consider the duration. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord. And now you look at the screen and you process that fourth guideline. That in times of trials, be patient. He's saying to you in very practical terms, Trusting in the purpose of the Lord. And you say, well, Gary, I don't necessarily know what that purpose is. But again, he reveals enough to make our faith intelligent. He conceals enough to allow our faith to grow. And there was a sense of the concealment in Job's experience. Because Job did not know what was taking place between the evil one and God in the heavens. But God knew. God knew. And what you and I have to be able to understand in the midst of life is that God has not promised to make us comfortable. He's determined to make us conformable to his will, the furnace. He puts us into the furnace to remove the dross and to make us moldable into his hands. But keep this in mind, as my pastor Warren Wearsby once wrote, when you are in the furnace... Your father keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. He knows just how much we can take. So what did Job do then between early and late rains to be able to manage? If you can't own your trial, you better manage the trial because God owns the trials and we manage them. 
three significant certainties emerge. Emerge. Emerge from where? Look at this passage that appears on the screen. It's from Job chapter 19, verse 25 to 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, Job said. Now, he was rooted historically in the time period of the book of Genesis. A duration between that time and the time in which our Savior would be raised. And in the midst of his pain, God is involved with purpose. And God is working process. Think pain, think purpose, think process. I know that my Redeemer lives. There's your first certainty. And he said it before, not after, the three days later principle. For I know that my Redeemer lives, he said. And a second certainty, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. He's speaking of the second coming of Christ. He is not going to be judged for having an underdeveloped gospel. He sees the sum totality of God's sovereign redemptive plan. But then a third certainty. And after my skin has been destroyed, speaking of after death, yet in my flesh I will see God. He pictures himself glorified, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold There's that word again, and not another. He's got three significant certainties that are guiding him through the uncertain time of duration pertaining to the trials because he's taken truth and poured truth into trials and now understands the relationship between God's purpose and Job's pain. The question is to you. Well, James says, the Lord is compassionate at the end of verse 11 and merciful. Bernard Gilpin, who was accused of heresy because he'd put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, set off for London for his trial in a prior era. And his favorite maxim was, all things are for the best. And on his journey, those that thought otherwise, began to cynically question him of that. Is it all for the best now after he found that his leg was broken on his journey towards his execution? I still believe so, he responded. And history tells us that it was still proved because before he was able to resume his journey, his executioner, Queen Mary, died. And instead of going to London to be burned, he returned home in triumph. And all things work together for the good. Doesn't mean that all things feel good. Sometimes things feel bad in the midst of all things working together for the good. But now connect the pain to the purpose, to the plan, and think process. You might be between right now early and late rains. But the late rains do come. Phillips Brooks was pacing back and forth in his study when a friend came by and asked him what was wrong. Brooks looked up and said, The problem is, I'm in a hurry. 
and God isn't. Is that where you're at? Then you go back to first things. And you embrace the grace and the guidelines that are found in these verses. And you live for Jesus through the trials, based upon the truth, because of the triumph that three days later he rose from the dead. Let's stand together. So I want to pray right now for that person who's between early and late rains. When we're skeptical, we view the early rains as a teaser. The water evaporated, and now I'm in the dryness of life. But there is a second rain coming. And we need to be able to embrace what it means to live between the two seasons of rain. So, Father, if there's one here who's struggling right now with the trials of life, bring your truth to their trials and allow them to stay focused upon Jesus. And if there's one here today that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in any of these morning services, right now, so speak to that heart that they have nowhere to go and no one else to turn to except you and you alone. May they put their faith now exclusively in the one who endured trials for their sake, died in their place, and was raised the third day, validating his purpose for our lives. And for this, we'll give you all the praise, all of it, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.